Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. I'm Jen. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in with our plan today, we are on day number seven. And as always, if you have any questions that you would like for us to answer, you can email those to info at grove.church, or you can direct message the Grove Church Facebook page or Instagram. We would love to answer your questions. If I have questions, can I email that? Nope. To- oh. Nope. Sorry, Jen. This is you are Now that you're one on the rotation of co-hosts, you may only answer Bible oh, okay, questions. You are no longer allowed oh, to ask them. Yeah, here's, here's where we are. Uh, yeah. So for those of you, uh, this similar introduction to last week, for those of you who attend the church, you probably know Jen. Uh, if you don't, uh, Jen is our connections pastor here at the church. So she's been on staff. Uh, we, we started right around the same time. So yeah, around the same time. There you go. So we're, we're equally old. I don't know. We're, we're old, about, old fogies. We're about a decade in, you and I. We're a couple of old battle axes <laughs> at, the, at the Grove Church. Uh, but no, she does a great job. And so she also uh, loves to preach and teach. And so we brought her on uh, to help out. I don't know, Jen, anything else you want, the, you want the people to know about you? What do I want the people to know? Um, I don't know. I think just what, what connections means to me is um, being able to connect you to whatever you need. Um, and a lot of that is networking too. So I just like always to throw that out there because I want to be your hero. If you need something, I'm going to find it. There you go. <laughs> if you come to the church and you need to get plugged in, talk to Jen. Mm-hmm. If you don't come to the church, don't talk to Jen because she won't. <laughs> no, you can. <laughs> there's a there's a church in somewhere in Arizona. I forgot where, but it's called the Grove Church. And we get, I'm sure they get some of our stuff too, but we get mm-hmm. their people all the time. We had someone sign up for a life group, super excited to join, even called the leaders and then they put it into their GPS the night of, <laughs> and it was like, it's going to be 30 hours to drive. <laughs> That's not in my town. That one. And then we had someone here, their friend told them about the Grove and like, oh, I'd love to attend. So they, they, uh, they started watching online basically to kind of get a feel for the church. And they watched for a whole month until they noticed the pastor was celebrating the Phoenix Suns <gasps> making it into the NBA no. finals. So for four, <laughs> for four weeks, they thought that they were checking out this church that their friend went Aww. to, and instead they were checking out a church in Sad Arizona. Face. There you go. If you're joining us from the church at, from the Grove Church in Arizona, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> or the one in California. I get that one a lot too. There you go. Uh, and then the same disclaimer for this week uh, goes as well. I'm, I'm playing a little bit sick today, so uh, I'm going to try and cut out all the coughing attacks and stuff like that, but... Bear with me. My voice sucks and I'll, I'll probably be a little bit more low energy today, but not intentionally. I'm going to try and go as, as hard as I can. So with that being said, let's talk about the Old Testament this week. All right, let's do it. All right, well, we kick off this week's Old Testament readings back with Abram and Lot. So chapter 13 sees them leave Egypt after Abram claims that Sarai is his sister. Um, I said this last week, but obviously that's not going to come up again and be a weird generational sin thing that's going on. But <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, At this point, Abraham realizes that he and Lot are too wealthy and this town ain't big enough for the two of them. Uh, Not really. They love each other, but basically their their herds are just always going to be crossing over. It's kind of like when Aaron and I are in the same room. It's true. Yeah. Aaron is (laughs) notoriously just, you know, difficult to to work with and live with. And uh, honestly, one of the worst co-hosts I've ever ever had. So what are you going to do? Bet you he's not even listening right now. I'm just kidding. Love Aaron. Uh, So anyways, this is all done in love, but basically they recognize that they can't just stay on a little plot of land, the two of them. So Abram takes Lot up to the top of a mountain and says, hey, look, 
Everything on the left, everything on the right, you pick. I'll go to the opposite one. Uh, Lot picks the one that looks better to him. So Abraham goes to, or Abram, sorry, spoilers. Yes. <laughs> uh, Abram goes to uh, the other one instead. And Lot settles, decides to settle in the city of Sodom. So that's that's going to come up here in a little bit. Not the best choice that he's ever made. There you go. So after this, uh, God speaks to Abram and promises to give him the land that he is now settled as his home to, that will be given to his descendants forever. So this, we know this is modern day Israel, or I mean, the kingdom of Israel is what eventually will come out of this. Uh, going into chapter 14, we get a pretty massive regional war that takes place. So this is four kings make war with four other kings. So this is actually a pretty big deal. Uh, at this point, get when you say when I say king get the idea of like massive empire out of your head. This is Kings of cities is what's happening. So it is a regional conflict. It's not like this massive thing that the whole middle East would have been aware of at the time. There was a few powerful kingdoms at this point, but very not, not as many. So it's the, the Kings of these cities are making war with each other. Specifically uh, two of the ones involved are Sodom and Gomorrah, which is where a lot lives in Sodom specifically uh, through all of this lot ends up being captured. And Abram takes his personal group of warriors, which are 318 in number and launches a rescue mission to save lot and all that he owns. So very successful. No one dies and they bring back lot and everything. After this, Abram meets with the king of Sodom, who promises to give him great wealth, but Abraham refuses, saying that it is God who makes him rich. So basically, I don't want your, I don't want your money. I don't want people to be able to say, uh, the king of Sodom has blessed me. I want people to say that it's it's Yahweh who has blessed me. Mm-hmm. We also meet this interesting cat who's going to come back up <laughs> in a. He's going to come back up when we're in Hebrews, but it's uh, Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. It says, then after his return from the defeat of Cher, oh, I should have looked up how to pronounce that one. Cher de Lamar, Chedor, Chedor Lamor, Chedor Lamer, the king, uh, the king that he fought against, the king, of, uh, the king of Sodom went out and met him in the Valley of Sheva. That is the King's Valley and Melchizedek. I know how to pronounce that one just because I've said it so many times. Uh, the King of Salem brought out bread and wine. And now he was a priest of God, the most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, God of God of the most high possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And he gave him a 10th of everything. So we have this interesting moment because and we'll get back into this in Hebrews. And by say, we, we will, I mean, far down the road when we're in Hebrews. Melchizedek is a weird character that just kind of pops up once. And then you would not be, you would not think it's weird if you never heard of him again. But he becomes a very big deal because what he establishes in the story is that there is such thing as a priesthood outside of the Levitical priesthood. So, and we're going to get the Levitical priesthood gets established later on in the book of Exodus. And so what this shows is that Melchizedek is not wrong for acting as priest. And because there's going to be another really famous high priest who's not a Levite, but I would, I would say, and I think you would be objectively wrong if you didn't agree that this is the greatest high priest. But again, we'll talk to that. We'll talk about that when we get into Hebrews, Uh, but that wraps up Genesis 14. So Jen, why don't you tell us what happens starting in chapter 15? All right. So yeah, we go into Genesis 15, which is, you know, basically God telling Abram all the things that he's promising him and what he's going to do through him. Um, But I don't want to spend a lot of time there because what really gets me is how jacked up (laughs) Genesis 16 is. Ain't that the truth. (laughs) This story, I mean, I relate. So here in this, in this chapter, we have Abram, Sarai, and their servant, Hagar, um, and honestly, I can relate to all three of these, you know, um, at different points in my life. I can I, I can relate to being a 
impatient wife who wants to do things her own way. I can imp- I can relate to being someone who seems like they're not seen and um, they're taken advantage of and abused. And I can relate to Abram who's like, dude, I don't know what's going on. You're my spouse. Do whatever you want. I'm just like, along for the ride. <laughs> So anyways, Genesis 16, let's jump in here a little bit and look at what's going on. So if you read into it, scholars suppose Hagar may have been given as a gift to Sarai and Abram during some time that they spent in Egypt. Um, You know, earlier when um, Abram and Sarai visited Egypt, you know, he said she's his sister and stuff. Um, They get to know them a little bit. And um, the Egyptians, they see that these people are people that know God and have been with God and that there's something unique about them. So Hagar went from living in what I think we can describe as a dark culture only because it was quote unquote godless, if that makes any sense, to living with probably the only godly family around at that time. She was living in a godly household with the father of faith himself. The things she must have seen, the beauty of the relationship between Abram and God, the favor, the protection that that household must have experienced. Do you ever think about that, Ev? Yeah, it's interesting because it's like, what do you... How, how many faith-filled households were, were there at the moment? Because Melchizedek, he's something. We don't right, know what he is. Something. And he's just yeah. – he's in there as a footnote. Yeah. Um, later on, we'll read about Job, who's not who's not an Israelite. And so it, it is kind of – I think Egypt is very safe to call <laughs> godless. Um, yes. Although at least, at least Pharaoh respected the law of God enough to be like, yeah, I'm not going to – I'm not just going to sleep with your wife. That's not cool. But <laughs> So good, good on Pharaoh for that one. Good but on yeah, Pharaoh. It, yeah, it would be – it would be an incredible culture shock. Right. And and I love the way that you phrased it of feeling unseen because I mm-hmm. think it's it's hard to get more unseen than one of the lesser foreign slaves mm-hmm. in a household that's already filled with tons of servants and slaves and, mm-hmm. and other people in there as well. Um, so yeah, Hagar truly is kind of at the – she's at the bottom of the social barrel uh, mm-hmm. or not the very bottom, but she's she's definitely kind of in this weird spot due to all of her history. So it's a really interesting point to bring up. Right. And so, so maybe perhaps the way she came to be with Abram and Sarai, she was given as a gift to them. And I imagine she lived most days in awe of the situation she found herself in. Like even before she was given to Abram and Sarai, I think her and the rest of the Egyptians, like I said, knew Abram and Sarai's reputation and how their God was real. And I like to think that when she was given to them, she looked at her friends and family and said, I've been called up. You know, it's the same thing I say at Starbucks when my order, my name gets called. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so Hagar's with Abr- Abram and Sarai, and she sees that Abram and Sarai have been given this promise. They're chosen. They're going to give birth to many nations through their baby. But it hasn't happened yet, and they are old. Um, so stick with me here. We're going to imagine a scenario. Um, it's very Downton Abbey. Tell me that Ashley's made you watch that. No. Uh, <laughs> if any, we've watched The Crown, which I hear is kind of similar a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Love The Crown. Haven't gotten around to Downton Abbey yet. Don't, <laughs> don't know that we will, but you know, who knows? Okay, okay. Well, all my Downton Abbey fans, imagine Hagar, one of the ones who lives downstairs. One night is probably, you know, minding her own business, doing her regular nightly servant maid duties for Sarai, maybe prepping her for bed, brushing her hair, while she sits in her nightgown talking over the day with her husband, when she overhears Sarai say, to her husband, hey, maybe we should help God out with this baby thing. Take my servant Hagar. And Hagar's probably thinking, wait, what? How is this my problem? So she goes from being a faithful servant, minding her own business, and in awe of this Christian household she's been placed in, to suddenly being forced to become sister wives (laughs) with Sarai and have a baby with Abram. 
Yeah, it's really, it's really <laughs> weird because it's it's so much of the Old Testament, and particularly when you get into the really ancient Old Testament, which is what this is, mm-hmm. the cultural things just don't make sense. Yeah. Um, this was – I'm not saying it's right. This was an incredibly common thing though. Yeah. Uh, for, so not as shocking – so my, my depiction of Hagar is not quite like – she. you know, right. it's a little bit more normal, but still. Like yeah, you have, you have <laughs> wives, you have concubines, and what a concubine is is it's essentially a slave who has been elevated – to have most of the honors of a wife, but not the full honors of, I don't know, like JV wife, I guess, is yeah. maybe a way yeah. that you put it. It's like a weird <laughs> way, varsity. It's That's a way to so put it. Funny. But yeah, you forget about it because all the, I, don't, it, it, I guess it just comes from like you hear so many of the Old Testament stories in Sunday school that they kind of mm-hmm. censor some of the things. Because like Jacob had two wives mm-hmm. and two concubines. So mm-hmm. the 12 sons of Jacob, a good chunk of them are born of the concubines. They're mm-hmm. not actually born of the wives as well. So it's a whole it's a whole mess that yeah. we find ourselves in. But I do imagine it this way because later we see, you know, how dejected she is and and how her, you know, great job in this amazing household goes from what that was to, you know, being abused by Sarah and them despising each other because we see that she does get pregnant. Right. She she has um Abram's baby and Sarai and her, they just they if they had any friendship before, <laughs> it's gone now. Well, and you, you got to think there's there's some level of relationship there because she's like, oh, yeah, just, yeah, you know, take, take my, my servant. Take my servant. Take my servant. So it's not like I, I doubt that they're at each other's throats all the time beforehand. Yeah. But, but like you said, and here's the thing. It's funny. I remember this story of uh, um, when I was a youth leader, uh, a, kid, <laughs> a kid was asking me a question and he's like, hey, um, so like I – I've just been wondering, um, and I, I've not that I not that I want to do this, or I've ever thought about doing this, but I'm just wondering if you know, like in the old, t- and he, like I could tell, like he just <laughs> he didn't want to get to the point. And I was like, dude, it's okay, like just I just ask. And he goes, like, why why were they allowed to marry so many women? And I was like, okay, I get it, like because you don't want to you don't want right. people to think like I want to marry a bunch of women. Um, it's interesting because I think there's some parts of it in the law which are really beautiful. Um, Obviously, they don't apply to our culture today, but there's an, the idea of taking care um, – if your brother dies, the idea of taking right. care of his family I think yeah. is a really beautiful thing. And that's just how it was expressed in that day because yeah. that's kind of how it had to be. Um, I will say polygamy is permitted mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. It pretty much never works out for the best. <laughs> and, so, and, that's, and that's what I tell people is like, yeah, it's not necessarily inherently sinful, um, but it's very hard to point to any polygamous right. situation in the Old Testament and be like, ah, yeah, that it was right. a good thing that that guy took on multiple wives. And so it's a similar thing here. It's, a, yeah. it's not going to work out for the best. Well, and it was a normal cultural thing that if you wanted to have a family and for whatever reason you were not getting pregnant, then yeah, you take the concubine, you take the servant, and you build a family through them. That was very... Um, normal for them. But what we need to pay attention to here is God said that I'm going to do it through you. And so it's funny that Sarah wants to, she gets tired of waiting. She's probably got baby fever. She wants to take things into her own hand. Abram is, I, I feel like he's almost kind of pacifist, like turn a blind eye. And he's like, you know what? I don't know if, you know, what God's going to do or when, and he probably doesn't want to deal with his wife. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just imagining again. I'm inferring. But. Yeah, and there's, you know, there can also be just some some good old-fashioned sin going on there as well. So it is. It just so is he, what it is. Yeah, so I'm like, he's like, do whatever you want. Fine, I'll take her. Um, but anyways, can you imagine what's going through Hagar's heart and mind? Sarai, Abram, you know? Um, in the family that she once maybe admired and 
now she feels forced into this marital relationship she she didn't ask for. Um, she ruins her good standing with her mistress or is ruined by jealousy and abuse um, entering the relationship. And these godly people who she was so in awe of, who she served gladly and maybe enjoy, enjoyed the protection and blessings of their household since they were a godly household, um, they treated her horribly due to their their own lack of faith and sin, which is a whole nother story. We don't have time for it today. But um what I love to like kind of notice here too is she is being abused by quote unquote God's people. True. And there's many of us that have suffered abuse at the hands of other Christians. And again, that's a whole nother story, but just something to really sit there and think about for a minute when you know you're reading your Bible this week or spending time in prayer with God to think that you're not the only one who suffered abuse at the hands of Christ followers. Well, and it's a it's an important reminder too, because I think Sometimes we have a tendency to almost deify Bible characters and yeah. we just think of them as like, like Abraham yeah. was just like, God called him and then boom, he was great. Like, no, yeah. like the whole Bible is about really sinful, broken people who mm-hmm. do really sinful, wicked things and God loves them and, yeah. and, he, and, he, and he slowly changes them. Um, but I think we we do ourselves a disservice, a disservice when mm-hmm. we put Bible characters on a pedestal that they shouldn't be on. Um, and it also leads to amount of hopelessness with us because exactly. we think to ourselves like, oh, I can, I can never measure up to exactly. Abraham. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's Abraham. Like, yeah, you can. David. Yeah, you can. Like, <laughs> like whatever, whatever sin you've committed in your life, it is probably not as bad as what David did. Exactly. It's, it's one of those things to remember. Exactly. And you're exactly right. That's exactly what I think. So anyways, um, so Hare's in the situation. She finally is like, you know what? I'm out of here. So she runs away um, and she stops by a spring in despair. And then she hears a voice. And I want to sit on this for a minute. So here we go. She hears Hagar, slave of Sarah. Where have you come from and where are you going? Notice how the angel of the Lord addresses her. This is what I want to sit on. By name, he addresses her by name and responsibility. Hagar, slave of Sarah. By name, and her calling, by name and her identity, by name and what he knows she's running from, by name and what she's clearly rejecting. And I I, I want to sit there and think about that because I feel like it's funny how our sin is in du- direct opposition to our purpose or what we're called to do so many times. Um, when we sin, we're not only separating ourselves from relationship with God, but from what he's called us to do and be, even if it's not a picture-perfect scenario. Evan, I see your wheels turning. <laughs> oh, they're not. Sorry. I was I was just listening to what you had to say. Okay. So, oh, good. My thoughts are making your wheels turn. Well, that's something. <laughs> um, and we always think we're hiding it. You know, she runs to the spring. We think no one has a clue until we come face to face with the one who sees us. And I mean, her sin was justified. Um, look how they were treating her. She never asked for any of this. Of course, she could stand up for herself, right? But- The angel of the Lord calls her by name and purpose. He says, I see your misery. You are validated in how you feel. I will take care of you and bless you, but you have to go back. You have a calling and a purpose. Do what you know you're to do. I'll take care of the rest. That's a great, that is a great reminder. So moving into chapter 17, Mm -hmm. we find out that Abram is 99 years old when all this takes place. So he's not exactly... He's not exactly a young guy. I don't know how people aged back then. I would imagine Abram 
wasn't as decrepit as like a 99 year old would be right now. Mm-hmm. Um, although I knew a 99 year old who went skydiving. So it is. Is it 99 back then? Like 25? I don't know. It's not. Like, <laughs> Aram lives a long time. So, all right, well, he looks like what? 175, I think. So maybe this is like, maybe he's like in his fifties at this point, theoretically. <laughs> who knows? Uh, anyway. In this moment, Yahweh establishes a covenant with Abram to make him a great nation uh, if, Abraham, if Abram will walk in the ways of righteousness. And it is here that Abram's name is changed uh, to Abraham. So this goes from meaning exalted father to all of a sudden being the father of multitudes. Mm-hmm. So God is saying, this is what I'm doing with you. I'm changing your name so that you know that this is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, he promises that through Abraham – all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he makes the sign of this covenant circumcision, uh, which Abraham Abraham immediately does for himself and all of his house. So kind of a bittersweet moment, I would imagine, for all of the people there. You make a covenant with God and then it's just re- a really painful day after that. <laughs> Literally. But, yeah, it's just no, it's just no fun. Uh, But God also promises to make Sarah, whose name is changed from Sarai, a mother to the nations. Abraham laughs at the idea, but God tells Abraham that she will have a son who is to be named Isaac. Uh, God also says that he will bless and take care of Ishmael, but that his covenant is going to be with Isaac. And you'll see this theme a lot in the early patriarchs is there's multiple sons, but one of the sons is favored above Mm -hmm. the other ones. And so this is where we get. uh, And interestingly, I mean, spoilers for next week, I guess, but... (coughs) It's it's the uh, settle down. Ed. I know. <laughs> it's the younger son who's favored. So Abraham has he has many sons, but his first two sons. Abraham had many sons. It's true. That, that we never talk about. Um, but Isaac is the one who's favored over Ishmael, and then Isaac is going to have sons. But it's Jacob who's favored over Esau. So there, and even then, like if you get to Jacob, it's who's like kind of the big one that ends up getting favored is Judah over Reuben, right. who is the oldest one. So and Joseph is in there as well. So it's a whole thing. I don't know if you were already planning on saying this, but were you going to hit on why circumcision was such a fitting symbol? I just recently learned about that. Oh, go for it. Okay, so. Um, Circumcision is such a fitting symbol for this covenant relationship because the Jewish story, it does really um, begin here. And it is sealed in the organ of generation that carries human life forward. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Through you, all nations will be blessed. In all my years, you know, not a pastor's kid, but a grand pastor's kid, all my years growing up church, never really put that together until... Does it? That's a great thought. I love, no, great thought. Great, great interjection. Uh, and so all this is happening. Uh, Sarah laughs once again at the idea as well. Uh, I know. So anyways, God promises, uh, sorry, sometime later, some men are passing by and Abraham invites them to join in for an evening of hospitality. Back then in that culture, that was a very important thing because you're wandering through the wilderness. It's a very dangerous place to be. So if you if you came across other people, it was expected that you would welcome them into your into your tribe. You would feed them. You'd give them a place to rest, and then send them on their way as well. So Abraham's Abraham's being a good nomad at this point. Uh, these these men are actually angels, is what we find out. So kind of cool there. Uh, they tell Abraham that they're going to come back a year from now and that he's going to have a son from Sarah. Uh, and Sarah laughs at this <laughs> idea once again. Uh, and then the men tell her tell her directly that, hey, we're going to come back and you're going to have a son. Uh, and then they get up to leave to Sodom. And this is when God reveals that they're going into Sodom in order to judge the city and see if it might, if it needs to be put to destruction. And Abraham is thinking, oh, wait, my nephew Lot lives there. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the... Uh, it's one of the most, I think it's one of the funniest passages of scripture because Abraham is talking with God and he goes, Lord, if there was, if there was just 50 people in Sodom, you wouldn't destroy the whole place, would you? And God's like, 
okay, no, that's fair. 50 people, <laughs> I won't destroy it. And then Abraham's like, oh, thank you. Actually, okay, well, what if there was only 45? <laughs> and then like, and God's like, yeah, 45, sure. I won't destroy it if there's 45. And Abraham's like, oh, thank you, Lord. Okay, but what about, and he, he works his way all the way down to 10. And it's not, I feel like in Sunday school, I remember hearing that it's like God keeps coming back and be like, hey, I didn't find him. And Abraham's like, oh, this is what it is. No, Abraham, in and of itself, he knows, he knows that Sodom sucks. And he keeps like, he keeps talking himself down and eventually he gets to like, well, let's see, there's Lot and there's his wife and there's his daughter. That's five right there. So maybe there's five on top of it. Yeah, like 10 righteous people. Uh, spoilers. God doesn't find 10 righteous people. <laughs> Uh, but Jen is going to talk about that here in the uh, the next upcoming section. Yes, but what I love about that little argument that you're even talking – well, it's not even an argument, but a discussion, a bartering maybe uh, between you know God and these – I mean, not God and these angels, but Abraham and these angels is that – Abraham's trying to show grace, you know, he's trying to extend and save his family. And also, I think that the fact that the, the angels keep saying, well, okay, if there's that many, well, okay, if there's that many, that's a, a picture of God continually showing grace oh, yeah. and mercy. And so the two angels come and they come to Lot and Lot's like, oh dear. So he sees them out, I think, like the in the, the center of the city or something like that. And, right. and Lot is like, he knows where he lives as well. I mean, it's Sin City for real. And so. Well, and you get a, you get a picture of the wickedness of the city right there mm -hmm. is that they're not going to open up their hospitality to these travelers. And Lot knows that. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a contrast that Abraham was willing to do this. Lot's clearly willing to do this. Yeah. But all of the people around are like, we're going to, they're going to do bad things. Oh, boy. Yeah. So Lot begs he urges them these two visitors to come stay with him um and it's his urgency and persistence that i want to um focus on there for a minute because I, I love how it carries weight they re they don't they don't just want to go with him right away but they relent and eventually go with lot i think because of his persistence and so lot um oh wait sorry yeah, um, because of his per persistence. And I just think that that really means something because we just saw it with Abraham and the angels, his persistence of, please don't destroy him of this. Please don't destroy him of this. And now we see it with Lot, like, please come with me t this way because I know what's going to happen. And it's like, basically, um, all the, the the yucky people in town, that's what I'm going to call them, the yucky people, the yucky people that's in fair. town <laughs> come to Lot's house and they're like, bring out these visitors. We want to have some relations with them. And Lot is all, please don't do this wicked thing. He even offers his daughters, which I'm not even go down that road. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, sa safe to say that's not a good thing that Lot offers. It's, <laughs> like sometimes, and th this is an important point to make, I guess, at some point is um, sometimes if something's not expressly condemned in scripture, we kind of wonder like, well, wh wait, what is going on here? Like, right. like no, God, God, the scripture does not say every time a character does something wicked that this is a wicked thing. Right. Um, Lot offering up his daughters here is not a good thing. Uh, and right. so he's, he's, it, it's, Somewhat good intentions, I guess, because he's trying to save these strangers who are coming into the land. But that's not that's not the way to do it. So no, 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 no. Yes, for sure. So um, this all happens, and um, it comes to a point where the 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 angels, the visitors, they save Lot because the the crowd outside is about to go at Lot, and so they pull Lot into the home, shut the door. It it becomes apparent that the angels are there to judge the place and destroy it. And so they tell Lot, you know, you and your family, you're going to have to get out of here. We're going to do what we have to do. So they're telling Lot he has to leave, but Lot hesitates. 
Um, and so there's a little bit, I don't know if it's just a disobedience there or um, a playing it out in his head like, okay, I hear what you're saying and I agree with it, but what about this, that, and the other thing? Like, I'm going to be leaving this, that and behind. I don't know what's going through his head, but Lot hesitates. But God's great compassion for him caused the angels to make them move by grabbing their hands. They grabbed Lot's hands, his wife's hand, and took them out of the town. So there was still a chance to obey after this grace was shown too, um, because they tell Lot and his wife not to look back. And so even though there was grace shown in the fact that they, you know, they hesitated because it's never necessarily good to hesitate when God tells you to do something. And even though God showed grace by having the angels grab their hands and take them along, there was another chance to obey when, the, you know, saying, do not look back. Um, this chance... This time, grace wasn't necessarily extended to his wife when she looked back because she turns into a, um, a pillar of salt. And it does make me wonder, I don't know if you have the answers to this, Evan, um, when I was studying this, it begs the question, was the previous grace of grabbing their hands when Lot hesitated, was it extended mostly only for Lot or was it for their whole family? Because they weren't so... I think if I think if Lot looked back, he would have turned into a pillar of salt as yeah. well. Well, so, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they weren't so gracious with her, you know. Right. So Oh, that's right. I think yeah. there was a moment of grace. But there I mean, we and we see this in all throughout the Old Testament is there's grace upon grace upon grace until there's not anymore. And, and, and God <laughs> Yes. Is, it's most famously praised plays out with Israel where they keep worshiping false gods and they keep saying that like the the one that really sticks in God's craw is when they say, like, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. Um and eventually God just is like, okay, we're done. Jerusalem's getting destroyed. You don't get your country anymore. And I think this is where this moment is, is where mm-hmm. he came in to save Lot and his family. Like he didn't have to do that. Yeah. Uh, and even when they said, no, we're good, he kind of forced them on their way out. Yeah. And so finally it's like, okay, like I'm not just going to keep, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be flippant with the way I'm describing God's attitude here, but right. it seems that God is is not just going to, f- he's not going to force people. Yeah into accepting his grace at a certain point. Right. You just have to live with the consequences. Because we do have free will, but like at some point too, like when he just grabs their hands and goes, I think because he knows Lot's heart and where that's coming from. So he's having grace for that hesitancy. Could be. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, um, that's all I really wanted to land on there. I don't really have even much for 20 because we spent most of our time on the whole Hagar, Sarah, Abram, sister wife situation. But <laughs> yes, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of sister wives, Lot's daughter's, yeah. Anyway. Oh, All right. We're yeah. going to skip. We're gonna skip that's this. why I wanted to skip that one. There you I'd go. forgotten. <laughs> it happens. And, you know, it's best that we just move on. So, but it, but that's where Moab comes from. Uh, so Indeed. we get to, Indeed. we get to chapter 21 and we see Isaac being born. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is of course a massive cause for celebration. And Abraham sits at a cool 100 years old when all this happens. So holy Ooh. cow. Uh, and I put, well, as you can imagine, because polygamy never leads to a peaceful household. <laughs> Sarah becomes really annoyed that the other son that she concedes, or sorry, that the other son that she convinced Abraham to have, uh, you know, he gets, she gets annoyed that he's around here. He's like, Hey, mm-hmm. who's, who's this kid? Which I, I completely get, I side with Hagar almost completely on this because it's just like, you know, this wasn't my idea. This was your, this was your idea. Now yeah. you're mad that there's another son running around. Uh, and so Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael sent away and Abraham with God's blessing Obliges, uh, which I do think it's interesting that God, God blesses this, but it he he uses it for for good in the sense of he he blesses Ishmael, but they uh yeah we'll we'll just read this next passage and it's one of my favorite passages honestly in all of the scriptures showing God's sympathy for the downtrodden. 
All right, so this is Genesis chapter 21, verses 14 through 21. It says, So Abraham got up early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, may I not see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and raised her voice and wept. Um, I think this is one of those, and maybe it's because I have kids now. This is one of those passages that, boy, that hits me really hard of just the idea of I'm going to die. I don't want to watch my kids die uh, or I don't want to watch my son die. And so she just hasn't she tells him just sit over here and she goes away so she can still hear, she can still, they can still communicate, but she doesn't want to see it happen, uh, which is, that's just so sad and tragic. Um, and that's, that's where she's at. And it says she, she raises her voice and weeps, which makes sense. Uh, and then in verse 17, it says, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Get up, lift up the boy and hold him by the hand for I will make a great nation of him. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So there you go. So Ishmael, uh, you know, it's not exactly, it's, it's a happy ending, I guess. He, he gets to become the father of a great nation. Uh, unfortunately, those nations come into conflict with the nation of Israel later on, but that's just kind of what you would expect from this whole messy situation. But I love the the grace that God has for both Hagar and for Ishmael in this moment. Uh, the chapter ends with Abraham swearing a covenant with Abimelech to, Abimelech to deal peacefully with him, uh, which is nice con- considering the whole "my wife is my sister" fiasco. So good, good on Abraham for swearing a swearing a covenant there. Uh, Genesis twenty two gives us the story of Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Abraham is understandably really confused about this, but he agrees to it. Uh, Abraham has faith that God will provide another sacrifice or give him another son. And again, this is one of those things that culturally is just nuts to us today, because thankfully we don't, well, uh, we don't live in a culture of religious child sacrifice, which is really, which is a really great thing that we that we've left behind in the past. Um, at this point, it's a very normal thing, and it, it's funny because we kind of when we hear stories about child sacrifice, and particularly when you read about them in the Bible and stuff like that, because they'd worship Molech and the other gods who. That's what that's what they demanded. We think of them as being exceptions to the rule, um, when in reality the exception is Yahweh. The exception <laughs> is is not sacrificing your children for your own for your own safety, for your own protection, all these different things. Um, and so when God is asking Abraham to do this, and again, I, I want to be very careful. I think sometimes we look at biblical characters and we place them into our modern context. Mm-hmm. So we think of Abraham as like, oh yeah, he's just a Christian guy who right. lived back in, who lived a long time ago. Nope. He was like, he was a, he was a nomad. Uh, he lived in a very different culture. And the story of Genesis is God taking this pagan nomad and slowly over yeah. generations molding this family into his chosen people. Um, same thing with David. We think mm-hmm. of David as kind of being like the king of England and he's just a good, like, you know, <laughs> like we, like we think of him in that, in the kind of medieval terms, almost not that the medieval Kings were great either, but well, I think we forget it because we know Jesus and we have to realize that anybody in the old Testament, none of them knew God like we do because true. we have, we get to know him through Jesus, you know? No, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, and so Abraham, it, when he's being asked to sacrifice his son, 
it's a, a really disheartening thing. But in his mind, he's probably thinking like, oh yeah, this is just what sometimes the gods mm-hmm. tell you to do this. And I guess Yahweh is going to have me do this as well. Um, because he he has faith that God will provide another sacrifice. But again, he, he the other thing he says is even if he doesn't, I know he'll provide me another son. So mm-hmm. the, Abraham clearly thinks that this could happen. Well, and I've never wanted to sacrifice my kids to benefit myself, but I have wanted to put them on the curb with a free sign. I get it. To, to benefit myself. I, <laughs> there you go. I like it. Um, so anyways... Abraham builds the altar. There's no other sacrifice. So he, Isaac is now on the altar and he raises his knife and an angel stops him and reveals a ram that's in a thicket that can be sacrificed instead. And God rewards Abraham for his trust in him. And if you're wondering about like, this is really significant. Yes, because the ram, that's very symbolic of another sacrifice that is going to be given for us freely from God. Uh, it's Jesus. So, <laughs> so there you go. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit, of, not a Christophany, because I don't think the ram is actually Christ, but it is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament that I love. Now, Jesus. Now, every time I go to the restaurant, the ram, I'm going to think of Christ. So hey, thank, you know, thank you for that. There's worse things. <laughs> but that wraps it up for chapter 22. So Jen, why don't you take us into the, the next day's yeah, readings? Yeah, so 23, um, Sarah dies. <laughs> Bummer. That's it. But what I want to go into um, a little bit, not even too much. Like I said, I spent most of my time on the Hagar thing. Fascinating stuff. Um, 24 is when we are looking for a wife for Isaac. Um, and it's interesting, all, all the things that they go through to find this wife. So um, Abraham is like, I need, you know, he says to his best servant, like, he's like, not going to put any Joe Schmo on this job. It's going to be the best, best servant. He's like, I need you to go find a wife for my son. His Tommy Lassels, if you will. Uh, (laughs) It's a little bit of a crown joke for those of you who watch that show. Um, And so he's like, I need you to do this. And, And his servant's like, well, what if I can't find a girl? Should I go back to where you came from? And he says, no, anything but that. Don't go back to where, you know, go back. I don't want, you know, him to get a wife from these people. So he wants someone from his family. So... He says, this is what you're going to do. And he gives them all these stipulations and he sends them with all these gifts and he sends them on this journey. And what I think we can get from when we're reading about just all that the servant goes to, he even prays to God, you know, give me favor, give show my master favor in how I can find Isaac, the perfect wife, because Abraham is thinking along the lines of this promise. He does not want to set Isaac up for failure. He does not... Um, want to, I mean, he's gotten in the way of, you know, God and his promises before and tried to take things into his own hand. He does not want to make the mistake of putting a stumbling block or, or messing things up or, you know, anything like that again. So he wants to do things right. He wants to honor the Lord. He wants to make sure this promise can carry on. And so it's worth great effort and sacrifice to obtain the blessings of what is going to be a very serious, and for us nowadays, when we're married, a, 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 an eternal marriage. There's a lot of work p- being put into this. I think that's what we can take from Genesis chapter 24, is that it's worth great effort to find that person that's going to help you be all that God wants you to be, help you um, do all that God calls you to do, and you for that, and that person as well. It's true. And that's why when I, you know, when I wanted my wife, I sent a servant and I had him... <laughs> Go ask to water the camels and, you know. Was the servant me? Because I remember taking her to Disneyland and talking about you. There you go. And then all of a sudden, Ashley was like, well, let me water your camels as well. And then it was was a whole thing. Match made in heaven. Uh, So chapter 25 sees a passing of the torch as far as the story goes. 
Abraham dies at the age of 175, uh, but not before he marries his second wife, which we never talk about her. So her name is Keturah. Uh, she gives birth to six sons, most notably Midian. Uh, and Midian's a real, uh, not the person, we don't know much about Midian, but Midian, the people group, it's a real high and low situation because you got Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, so Zipporah, so a bunch of the Levites come from that line. Uh, and then you also have, that's the that's a group of people who go and invade with Gideon. So, and this, I should say not the same group. It's not like a couple generations later, Jethro's like, actually screw the Israelites, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's the Midian is kind of a larger people group. So there you go. Uh, we also get the cap on Ishmael's story. So he lives to 137 years old and he has 12 sons, which to be fair is a good number of sons to have. Mm-hmm. So there you go. We'll see that number come up again next week. Or the week. No, it's next week. Yeah, we're good. Eventually. Yeah, you know. Uh, we then zoom back over to Isaac, who prays for Rebecca to be able to have children. So much like her mother-in-law, she was unable to conceive and have children. Unlike her mother-in-law, it doesn't seem like she has to wait forever for this to happen. It, it, Isaac prays and God grants it. Uh, she then becomes pregnant with twins. And we get this prophecy that the Lord tells her about. It says, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body, and one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her days leading to the delivery were at an end, behold, there were twins in her womb. And now the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Or Isaac was 60. Yeah, yeah, when she gave birth to them. I thought. Isaac's not a she. I was like, what's, what's <laughs> but you know what? That's, that's the Bible for you sometimes. Uh, there you go. So that happens. Uh, Esau, his name basically just means red. So like big red is mm-hmm. kind of how you could translate it. Uh, Jacob's name means kind of trickster or deceiver is the way that you would do it. So because he's holding onto the heel. So that's how they name him. And they live up to the names. Mm-hmm. So there you be. Uh, after this, Esau, he goes out hunting. This is obviously years later. Uh, he goes out hunt- hunting and he's really hungry and he comes back and Jacob's like, oh, hey, I got some stew here. And Esau's like, well, can I have some? <laughs> and Jacob's like, well, why don't you give me your birthright? And Esau's, Esau, who's not the brightest bulb in the bunch. is Especially like, when he's hungry. It's true. <laughs> he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, and so I-, I had this epiphany last year, but I think it's it shows how Jesus is the better Esau because Jesus is confronted with hunger as well. And he's offered, he's offered food Mm -hmm. and he rejects it. And then Esau is confronted with hunger. He's offered food and he just despises his birthright in Mm -hmm. the words of the Bible. Which is really what I love about, they use the word despise, but it's really just him being flippant. And so that shows you how serious being flippant can be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, when we see that Isaac, uh, after this, we see that Isaac settles with the same Abimelech who we read about earlier. So this is the king that uh, Abraham made a covenant with. And then Isaac is afraid that some of the men of the nation would kill him to marry his wife. So what does Isaac do? He lies and said that Rebecca is his sister. Where have we seen that because, before? Because apparently this is just a struggle of all the men in his family. Um, I can't remember if if Abimelech is the same Abimelech or if it's his son. Uh, but either way, I feel like I would be pretty peeved. I'd be like, dude, <laughs> what, what are you doing? With this family. Why can't you just say your wife is your wife? <laughs> I don't know. I imagine, I imagine he just flipped out. And yeah, after all this, Abimelech asks Isaac to move to Gerar, which again, seems fair to me. I, I just, I don't, I completely get Abimelech being like, I'm so, I'm so tired of this guy. <laughs> I just, I don't want I don't want any more confusion. We're not going to kill you. We didn't kill your dad. We're not going to kill you. So there you go. Uh, Isaac then moves. He moves to this new land. 
And he has a run in and asks some of the locals, uh, sorry, he has a run in with some of the locals as he digs up the old wells of his father and he ends up having to give one up and dig a replacement well somewhere else. So there you go. If you're, if you're into wells, there's a nice little story. I have in there a well. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Like, you don't have to brag. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need the city water. I've got a well. Uh, Isaac, Shout out to the mazes. There you go. Uh, Isaac then makes a covenant with Abimelech, uh, which is a little bit more awkward than the one with Abraham, seeing as Isaac was kicked out, but it is what it is. So both Abraham and Isaac make a covenant with Abimelech after lying and saying that their wife is their sister. So, you know, luckily, Jacob breaks this generational curse or whatever you want to call it. At least I think so. I don't remember. Uh, maybe there is like a weird sister wife thing going on in there, but I'd, hopefully not. Hopefully not for Jacob. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week's Old Testament readings. Uh, before we jump into the New Testament, we do want to ask you to leave a five-star review if you haven't yet, <laughs> uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps on those particular platforms to get the podcast out there to more people and continue to grow this relationship of people reading the Bible together. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do leave a written one, we'll read it on the podcast and give you a shout out just you because, know you know, we I'll, appreciate our listeners. I'll take three stars. Let's keep it real. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that wickedness. Let's talk about the New Testament. Jumping back into Luke, Jesus meets a centurion who is well-respected by the Jewish elders of Capernaum. Uh, this centurion has a slave who he really cares about and has fallen ill. He sends some of the elders to ask Jesus to come and heal the man, and Jesus agrees. And then this happens, and I, lo I love this passage. Now, Jesus started on his way with them, but already when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For that reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but you just say the word and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under myself. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So yeah, I, I love this idea that it's it's clear that Jesus is coming not just for the Jews, he's also coming for the Gentiles as well. And yeah. that's and that doesn't get fully expressed in all of Jesus' ministry because clearly it's to the Jews first. Mm -hmm. um, but you you see these hints that are going around about how the the message is eventually going to spread to the Greeks and the Romans and all these different places. And I, I love that of all the people Jesus meets. This is the guy who has the, who has the greatest amount of faith. And I know so, it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as a footnote, which I, I mentioned this last week on the podcast, but I love how a bunch of the miracles of Jesus are just like a couple sentences and they move on like it's not a big deal. Like yeah. to us, it's like, what are you talking about? But <laughs> so yeah, you know, it happens. Uh, as a footnote, Jesus continues on and he sees a woman weeping loudly while preparing to bury her son. So kind of re reminiscent of the Hagar situation that we just talked about. Uh, and similar to God having compassion on Hagar, uh, Jesus has compassion on this mother and he brings the boy back to life. So really beautiful moment there. After this, Jesus receives a message from John the Baptist, who at this point is in prison under Herod. Uh, John seems to be undergoing some kind of a crisis of faith at this moment, and he asks Jesus if he truly is the Messiah. Jesus gives him a message back, or a message to his servants to deliver back, telling John how he is fulfilling the messianic prophecy. So he quotes Isaiah. Uh, interestingly, he leaves out the part about setting the captives free, which I think kind of, um, not as a joke, I think that is actually kind of hinting to John about 
you know, you're, you're not going to exactly get out of this. But I like to think that this built rebuilt up the faith of John. And lest we think less of him, after his messengers leave, Jesus declares that John is the greatest man ever born of woman. Uh, and then he also says that those in the kingdom of heaven are even greater than that. So he's saying he's in one breath, he's building up John. He's saying like he's he's essentially is one of the Old Testament prophets. Um, but those who take hold of the kingdom of God, it's an even greater blessing to that. And that's not to say John didn't. Like I, I think we'll meet John in heaven. But I think what Jesus is getting at is even the the greatest of the followers of the law. That's not what it's about anymore. It's about this new covenant that's happening. After this, Jesus is eating at the home of Simon, who is a Pharisee, when a woman comes in and begins to anoint Jesus' feet. Uh, the Pharisees see this happening and thinks that Jesus should send her away, or he would send her away if he knew what a sinner he was. Uh, Jesus, because he knows everything, uh, he then tells Simon a parable about two men who were forgiven debts, one for 500 denarii and one for 50. Uh, and you can, I mean, obviously that's, it's right there in the text that one is a lot bigger than the other one, but it's about a day's wages. So think about, if you wanted to contextualize that, maybe it's like, 50,000 compared to like $500 or something like that. I might've done my math wrong. Don't trust me on that. <laughs> math is hard. Uh, when Jesus asks which man would be more grateful, Simon responds that it would be the man, the man who was forgiven the greater debt. Jesus then explains how that is the same situation. So essentially he's saying this woman recognizes that she was forgiven a great debt. You don't. And again, the con the, the subtext there is not just that she's forgiven more than the other man is that he doesn't realize how much he's been forgiven. He thinks he's not even, I, I would, I would venture to say Simon probably doesn't even think he's been forgiven any debts. He's probably thinking like I have zero denarii that I owe. Uh, and Jesus is trying to point out to him that no, even if you've followed the law and you've lived a righteous life, you have sins that need to be forgiven. So yeah. I love that note at the end of the chapter. Jen, take us into uh chapter eight. Yeah. So, um, it, this is a weird one for me to hit on right from the get-go because I am a woman. <laughs> like, it's not like I'm on the platform for, you know, women in ministry or anything. But it is interesting that um, as before we move into a, a bunch more parables, Luke mentions women right off the bat in Jesus's ministry. And, it's, and he does so more than any other gospel. Um, here he mentions several by name. And it's noteworthy that the women came from a wide array of social classes. We have um, a demonic which if you had demon possession, you were from like the lowest class. Like people didn't want anything to do with you. Right. And, and then we have one, I think her name was Joanna, if I remember right, who she worked for Herod. Um, and she kind of like managed a lot of his um, stuff for him. And so she's in company with this demoniac or this woman who was, you know, uh, possessed by a demon. And so that is like a huge thing to say. Well, I think you get... Sometimes we think that Jesus had 12 disciples, and so he had 12 people that followed him around. There's a ton of disciples. So the 12 is like a yeah. special inner group of disciples, right. and then there's an even smaller inner group of like three and four yeah. from there. Um, and so keep in mind that there's a bunch of people that are following Jesus around. And I love how even the the women who follow him, like you said, it, it, it mirrors – you have Joanna and, and Mary Magdalene who mm -hmm. are about as far away as you can get as yeah. far as class goes. Yeah. And in the same with the uh, the the male disciples, you have Matthew right. and you have Peter. Yep. who's like a Peter's a <laughs> yeah. poor fisherman uh, from mm -hmm. up north and Matthew would have been very wealthy and, and they work together. You'd imagine there'd be some conflict with all this going on, but it's a beautiful picture of Jesus coming – not just for one specific class or one specific group, but Jesus really is coming for everyone. Yeah, and it's beautiful to see how they work together and um, how this ministry progresses. So these women provided for him and his ministry out of their needs. 
Um, what I want to focus on that fact is that Jesus was humble enough and godly enough, humble enough and godly enough to receive from others. Many of us are too proud to receive help from others. Sometimes the ability to humbly receive is a better measure of Jesus in our life than the ability to give. And I do think about that because I even remember one time, you know, Randy and I were really, really young and like we had a friend trying to convince us that we should apply for, you know, EBT because that's why we pay taxes is for such a time as this, but we felt so shameful about it, you know, but why you know why are we like that? Why is there so much pride in accepting help? You know, I thought, you know pride's pride's the first sin. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the first one committed is the yeah. I think it's Martin Luther who said pride is the sin that's pregnant with every other sin. Yes, so yes, is the way it goes. Yeah. So sometimes the ability to humbly receive is a better measure of Jesus in our life than the ability to give. Giving sometimes puts us in a higher place, but receiving may put us in a lower place. And so I just wanted to focus on that for a minute. But then we move in to. Um, Parable after parable after parable. And Luke portrays following Jesus through these parables as a journey. Um, it's something you do as you walk along life's path. Living for Jesus is something that you weave into your normal everyday life. Um, this is why parables are often used. Being a disciple means participating in Jesus's kingdom and making it your own through how he created you and how he's asking you to be. Um, so yeah, he did. He spoke by parable. And the idea behind the word parable is to throw alongside of. Um, it is a story thrown alongside the truth intended to teach. Parables have been called earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Evan, I want to ask you, why is a parable not exactly an illustration? Like, what's the difference there? Why? Oh, I think it's pretty... Yeah. Interchangeable to be do you, Oh, you do. I, yeah. I think you it's do. it's similar to, I think that sometimes we just use words to give a little bit more gravitas. Um, like it's the way we use mm -hmm. epis, epistle instead mm -hmm. of letter mm -hmm. for the, the letters of the apostles. I think it's just kind okay, of Okay. Well, like then a, let me put a thought into your head. Okay. So hear it. like a teacher can use an illustration, a story to like state a truth and um, they might, you know, a story like in an analogy or something to like, you know, share a truth. But when Jesus used parables, he didn't start by stating the truth, did he? No, he reveals it after. Yeah. Yes, yes. Instead, the parables, it's like a doorway. Jesus's listeners stood at the doorway and heard him. If they weren't interested, they'd stay on the outside. And that's when you hear him say things like, this is why I talk in parables, because it, some things are not to be revealed to people who are not ready to receive them, you know, um, like the people who think they know it all or whatever. But if you stand at that doorway and you step in, if you're interested, if you walk through that doorway and you want to learn more about the truth behind the parable and what it means for your life, then that says something. And that's what I think differentiates it from just a mere illustration. Oh, there you go. I like it. All right. Well, getting into chapter nine, it is just jam-packed with stories, similar to how chapter eight is kind of jam-packed with parables. So we get that, uh, the story of Jesus sending out uh, the 12 disciples to cast out demons and to heal the sick. While this is happening, Herod somehow thinks that John has come back from the dead. So John died. <laughs> Spoilers alert, but that's kind of how we find out there. Uh, and so he sees all the miracles happening. He's like, how on earth is this all going on? So I, I like the idea that Herod, Herod is recognizing that there's miraculous things going on. He's trying to contextualize it, which you see what's happening with a lot of the Jews at the time. What are they doing? They're they're comparing Jesus to Elijah or something like that. Uh, we then get the famous miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, this is when he's preaching. And this is just 5,000 men. So it was actually probably closer to like 10 or 12,000 people once you get count all of the, uh, the women and children. 
But uh, Jesus' teaching, he doesn't want to send everyone away hungry. And so we get uh, the offer. We don't get all the, all of this detail in Luke. There's other gospels that go into a little bit more detail. But basically, Jesus is given a small offering of five loaves and two fish, and he prays and he multiplies it uh, and feeds the entire crowd of 5,000. So really cool moment. And that is followed by this really important conversation. So this is in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 18 through 22. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said, which I guess is that would be Elijah as well. It's kind of funny. But, you know, <laughs> whatever you do. I guess Elijah wouldn't have risen. Elijah would have come back down. Uh, and he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God, or the Messiah of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell anybody, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. Uh, so Jesus straight up tells the disciples that this is the plan. And I, I used to give the disciples a lot of guff for this, but Jesus speaks so – he speaks in parables. He speaks intentionally kind of in a confusing way so often that I don't actually – blame the disciples for thinking, oh, I wonder what he means by that. And this time Jesus actually was being literally like, no, like literally I'm going to die and raise again in three days. So it is what it is. Uh, after this, we get the transfiguration, which shows Peter, James, and John, uh, Jesus in his full glory. And they see Moses and Elijah with Jesus as well. Uh, Peter decides to speak up instead of just keeping his mouth shut and watching what was happening. Uh, and he's like, hey, we should build some tents here. And he's like, no, come on, man, we're not doing that. Uh, and then they hear the audible voice of God saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Or I should say the audible voice of the father saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. After this, Jesus heals a young boy who has a spirit that causes him, causes him to convulse. This is another one of those like footnote. He does a miracle and he keeps moving on. Uh, Jesus then has a conversation with his disciples about reframing how they think about greatness. And he tells them that the least among them will be the greatest. Or in other words, humble yourself. And that is that is that is the greatest thing that you can do. And Jesus isn't just talking the talk here. He's walking the walk because there's nothing more humble than God, the creator of the universe, becoming one of his creation, which is what Jesus has done. So really cool thing there. Uh, there's also someone who has to join Jesus and Jesus tells them it's, it's going to be a real rough time. You know, he's like, hey, there's not going to be any place to lay your head and whatnot. And then he also tells two men who want to say their goodbyes slash bury a parent respectively uh, that, nope, you got you to come right now. So we don't know if they do or not. Um, I like to think some of them did. I don't know. I don't. I'm always curious about like, are any of these, are any of these stories people that we meet later on in scripture? Like, are any of these guys Barnabas? I don't know. <laughs> it's, or Mark? Like, yeah, you know, there's a few people where they kind of just like jump into the story. So I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but that's kind of how we wrap up the the. Sorry, day three of our reading plan. Jen, what happens in day four? Yeah. So for Luke 10, I just want to bump back a minute to Luke 9. So the beginning of Luke 9 says, you know, the 12 are sent out and they're given authority and power when they're sent out. And so um, I want to settle that on the moment, 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 that power and authority that they're given when they're sent out to do all these things. And then on their return, the apostles tell Jesus all they did, right? And he took them and withdrew apart to the town of Bethsaida, which is when we get into the conversation and everything you talked about. So Luke 10, 
it's it's kind of interesting because it circles back to being sent out. And like you even said earlier too, you know, when I when we were talking about, you know, the women that served Jesus and were in his company, that there were a lot of disciples. We hear about the 12 a lot, but there were a lot. And so at the beginning of 10, it says, now he sends out the 70. Some versions say 72. I guess there's some conflict there. I don't really know what that is, but I'm just, you know, yeah, mentioning it. Um, but he sends them out like he did the, tw- the 12 earlier. And in verse 10, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, pay attention to that, sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Where he himself was about to go. What a mercy it is. This is a quote from Spurgeon. What a mercy it is when the preacher knows that his master is coming after him, when he can hear the sound of his master's feet behind him, what courage it gives him. He knows that though it is very little that he can do, he is in the thin end of the wedge preparing the way for the one who can do everything. I just love thinking about that. That's a great thought. Yeah. And so, and then when they returned, they did the same thing the 12 did when they returned. They report to him just as the 12 did. They say in verse 17, they say, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, "Um, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And for me, that's a great way to end this discussion. (laughs) That's a great, that's a great point. Uh, Moving into day five. Uh, Luke 11 gives us another big old chapter with a bunch of stuff. Uh, we get the Lord's Prayer, which is a discourse on how we should pray with reminders that God wants to bless his children. Um, yeah, I in my own prayer life, I try to pray the Lord's Prayer when I pray. And what I mean by that is not word for word. Sometimes I do. But what I mean by that is, am I, am I hitting on all of the things? Because I think one of the dangers that we can fall into in prayer is that we just bring God a list of stuff that we want and that's it. Uh, And so in the Lord's Prayer, what happens? It's praising God for who he is and for what he's done. Uh, It's asking for God's will to be done here on earth. Um, It's bringing our sin before him. And it's also, uh, it's asking for forgiveness and also recognizing that we need to pass that forgiveness on to others. It's asking for daily provision for what we need. You know, it's all these things. And so you can, the daily provision part, I think is what we kind of focus on and there's all these other aspects to it. So I think it's a, it's a really good Luke 11 is a really good chapter to read just as far as an idea of like, well, what, what should I be doing when I'm praying? Uh, let's see here. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being a demon when he casts out a demon. So they're like, he's Beelzebub. And Jesus <laughs> is like, no, I mean, a house divided won't stand. So basically saying, if I was a demon, I wouldn't be casting out demons guy. Come on. He didn't say guy, but <laughs> uh, Jesus then reminds the crowd uh, that no sign will be given to this faithless generation except for the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah, you may ask? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I think I think what he's getting at is it's the sign that jo- the sign that was given by Jonah to Nineveh, and what that would be is someone who was in the in the belly of the sea creature, or kind of in death in the grave for three days, and then emerging and mm-hmm. speaking truth. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's mm-hmm. going to be in the grave for three days and then emerge and speak truth again. Uh, the last bit. 
sees Jesus having lunch with the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is judging him for not ceremonially, ceremonially washing himself before the meal. Uh, and so Jesus knows that this is happening, and he pronounces a series of woes on the Pharisees, including uh, woe to them for being clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. So in other words, they just care about the show of mm-hmm. the things. They don't care about what's happening on the inside. Uh, paying tithes, but not showing love. Yeah. So yeah, they're like, oh yeah, I take my money. It is whatever it is, but we, they don't show love to the people that they're even- Although- Still, please pay your tithes. Oh, sure. (laughs) Uh, Always seeking the seat of honor whenever they go places and being unseen tombs that are walked over and people don't even know that they're there. So I don't know exactly what that's getting at there. Maybe it's like an an idea of like um, at least death and people don't realize that it's a trap, but Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I I didn't have – this week's been a a freaking (laughs) – Yeah, we're coming off of the holiday. It is what it is. Next week, well, if I had this passage last next week, I would have had the time to dive into that a little bit more. Uh, Jesus then goes after the lawyers as well. So, which, you know, who doesn't like going after the lawyers? Uh, Just kidding. These are – and when I say lawyers in the – in this context, it's talking about people who interpret the biblical law is what it would be. And he gives them woes for saddling the people with a heavy burden that they themselves do not keep and also taking knowledge for themselves and not helping other people enter in. So that's the uh, that's chapter 11. Jen, why don't you take us through chapter 12? All right. For uh, chapter 12 here, I'm going to just, we're going to recap a little bit and I'm going to steal the words of the BibleRef.com because I like how they said it. But uh, Luke uh, 12, and then even honestly on through 15, I won't give too many spoilers, but the third major section of what they call the travel log of Jesus. Come on, that's the best title ever. I love it. is um, a group of stories providing the disciples with foundational theology. So that's what these stories, these parables are doing, are are providing foundational theology for those who um, take heed to hear. And I'm going to nod back to that heed to hear in a minute too. But they they need this theology to build the church that they're going to have to build. So... um, you know, and when Luke 9 through 11, we already went over, the disciples showed their devotion to Jesus, and Jesus promised that God would bless them. Um, in the second, uh, the Pharisees rejected Jesus, and Jesus revealed how their pious deeds masked their spirituality, um, spiritually abusive re- leadership, and rebellion against God and his prophets. And then um, this next one is comprised of three smaller units that um, they form a pattern. So you were going to see. Through 12, it's kingdom focus. Miracle teaches on, you know, kingdom and salvation. Miracle teachings on uh, kingdom and salvation just over and over again. And then we see, we I mean, honestly, we see it all through 16, 17, and 18. It's teachings of miracles and kingdom salvation. He's setting up their theology to build a church. So this unit describes how Jesus's followers should respond to the coming of God's kingdom. Oh, that's a great thought there. Uh, and finally, for the New Testament this week in chapter 13, uh, Jesus hears a story of a, of a group of people in Galilee who all died tragically. And Jesus tells the crowd that they must repent or suffer a similar fate as well. Uh, and the idea here isn't that they're just going to like, you know, randomly have a building fall on them or anything. But the idea is that uh, it's the eternal death, right? And so much of what Jesus does in his ministry is revealed to the people that his work is mostly spiritual. It's not physical the way that a lot of people were expecting it to be. He's he's the spiritual Messiah of the world, not the physical Messiah of Israel. Um, yet, I guess we'll we'll get to you know when we get to Revelation, we can talk about some of that stuff that happens. Uh, Jesus then heals a woman who was uh, hunched over for eighteen years, I believe. I didn't. I forgot to write down the dates. Uh, the leaders of the synagogue though are pretty peeved because this takes place during the Sabbath, uh, and I love Jesus' response here. 
It says in Luke chapter 13, verses 15 through 17, but the Lord answered and said, you hypocrites, does each of you on the Sabbath not untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this restraint on this Sabbath day? And he, and as he said this, his opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious thing done by him. Uh, it reminds me of Jonah, right? Where like God's whole thing with Jonah at the end is you care more about this plant than you do about all of the people of Nineveh. And Jesus' point here is you care more about your animals than you do about this woman who's, who's not even a foreigner. She's one of you. So I love that Jesus doesn't, you know, Jesus don't take no guff from the Pharisees. <laughs> Uh, after this, Jesus then tells his famous parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Both of these get after the idea that the kingdom of God is something great and that grows out of something small. Uh, Jesus then gives some small words of wisdom, which are really great to listen to. Uh, some Pharisees then go after him. And then I, I love how Jesus responds here. This is Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. It says, at the very same time, Pharisees approached saying to him, go away and leave this place because Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox because I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must go. I must go on my journey today and tomorrow and the next day for it cannot be a prophet. It cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her young to untie her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So it shows the judgment, but it also shows the heart that mm -hmm. Jesus has for his people. And that is where we wrap up the New Testament readings today. Uh, we also have a couple of Psalms and Proverbs to go over. So again, these recaps are a little bit more surface level, a little bit quicker, because I think the Psalms and the Proverbs are, they're usually pretty easy to understand what's going on in there. Uh, psalm 4 is a beautiful short Psalm about trusting God and thanking him for how he has always been faithful in our lives, which I think is something we can always apply to ourselves. Uh, psalm 5 is a Psalm asking for God's protection from the wicked, and it rejoices in the wonder of being able to run to God in times of trouble, which I talked a little bit about last week and the idea of, do we actually believe that that's something we can do? Uh, and then Finally, Proverbs chapter one is a sort of introduction to the whole book, and it reminds us of where wisdom comes from and that it should be treasured and not set aside. And really, that's kind of the big theme of the book of Proverbs is that wisdom comes from God and that we should love it. We should seek after it. We shouldn't put it away. We should live wise lives. So as we read through Proverbs, it'll be a little bit more broken up than I think the Psalms will be, but it's a it's a great reminder of kind of what the whole book is about. Uh, well, our last segment for today, as a reminder, uh, next week, we'll start taking questions again. This week's just been crazy. Uh, we want to talk about what we learned today. I learned absolutely nothing. Just uh -oh. kidding. No. <laughs> um, no, I think what really struck my heart through this week's reading is going back to chapter eight um, in the verse in Luke. Luke 8, the verse that says, Therefore take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Take heed how you hear. It's good to hear the word of God. It's much better to take heed how I hear it. In this, Jesus warns us to, to actively prepare the soil of our heart, our mind, um, and to judge ourselves in how we hear as much as we judge 
and we love to judge a lot. <laughs> Who's telling us what to do, what's being preached to us, what's being said to us. And um, I don't know. I mean, I've shared this before when we used to do the family podcast, but one thing I always do when I read the, our Bible reading every day is I say, God, put this in my heart, my head, and my mind. Um, and so, yeah, take heed how you hear. No, oh, I love that. <laughs> Uh, for me, it comes down to the story of Abraham uh, being willing to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, and I think there's a uh, there's a really famous – I shouldn't say famous, but there's a movie that is famous in my family because it can uh, it can get me to cry pretty much every time. We watched it on the – me and Ashley watched it on the airplane coming back. Um, and it's a story of uh, – I'm not going to spoil it, I guess, but it's called About Time. And there's a really like – there's a father-son just kind of – gut punch storyline in the middle of the movie that just like always, and it, it always used to get me because um, me thinking of my dad and now I have Joel, who's my son. And so now it's like a double whammy because I'm thinking it from that perspective, but I'm also thinking about it from the other perspective as well. And I literally spent like the last probably half hour of this flight, just like crying uh, <laughs> and holding my kid. And so the idea of holding the most dear things in our life, less dear than our relationship with God. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, I it's, it's it's true what they say. Like when you have kids and you look at the kid and all of a sudden you're just like, wow, I love this thing so much more than I ever thought <laughs> I could. Um, but at the same time, do I cherish my relationship with God even more? Uh, do I pursue per, do I pursue my relationship with God at top priority or do I allow um, the good things of life to become the ultimate thing in life, which is where I think it's C.S. Lewis in The Four Love says, um, Oh, I'm going to butcher the quote, but so my, my paraphrase would be essentially when love gets too intense, it ceases being an angel. It becomes a demon. Uh, when we put it above God, mm -hmm. it ceases to become something beautiful that turns our affection to towards God and it becomes something wicked that pulls our affections away from God. So I think that's something to, to think about this week. Yeah. Uh, well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Jen, thank you so much for, for joining me. Yeah, this is super fun. Uh, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>